0: Good morning and welcome to those of you joining us from Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you with us this morning. Before we get to the message, it really is my privilege and honor to introduce to you all Rob Lockery. Rob is with us this morning. Rob was part of our launch team for the Calvary Quakertown campus. Uh, Rob's come to Calvary Church for a number of years And Rob is here to help us think through his top 10. We're in a series called Top 10, looking at some key verses, maybe misunderstood a little bit. We're going to kind of pull them out, work them through. But before we get to that, I'm going to ask Rob a few questions, because you may not know this. Rob is a politician. Uh, Yeah, we'll still let, don't leave, don't leave, (laughs) Rob's a politician. Well, Rob, before we get to the political stuff, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your family? Kind of your wife, kids, what they're sure. up to.
1: Sure. Yeah, good morning. Welcome. Hello, Quakertown. It's great to be up here in <clears throat> Um My wife, uh, Kathy, and I have been, we just celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary on Thursday. So we've been married 21 years, yeah? Yeah. um And... As Charles said, we we've, we've, uh, are down at Quakertown, or up at Quakertown. We've been uh, attending Calvary now for about eight or nine years. We have three lovely daughters uh, who are very involved in Calvary. Um, we're in the Penridge School District. Grace, our oldest daughter, just graduated a month ago from Penridge, and she's uh, just wrapping up her second week of Plebe summer at the United States Naval Academy. So she's there. Yeah, it's a pretty big <laughs> deal. Evelyn, our middle daughter, she's going to be a junior next year, and uh, she's just back, I guess, a couple weeks. Uh, She was in Haiti with the Haiti Missions uh, trip. And then Amelia, our youngest, is going to be in ninth grade, and I know both Amelia and Evelyn have their bags packed, ready to go to Harvey Cedars tomorrow. There you go. Very involved in in the youth and the church and things like that.
0: Well, it's good to have you. Now, Rob, you're a Bucks County commissioner, and if most of these people here are like me, we understand mayors, governors, congressmen, Um, senators. What does a county commissioner do?
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, It's a little (laughs) civics lesson we're going to have right now. Um, So um, it's similar in Bucks County as it is in Montgomery County. In fact, most of the counties in the Commonwealth are run this way. There are three county commissioners that are elected, and you have one that's a chair. I'm the chair right now of the board. And so we oversee in county government everything from, you know, the the, the dispatchers that take your 911 calls uh, all the way to children and youth and human services and the drug and alcohol commission to parks and rec and to open space preservation and farmland preservation and sort of everything in between so the courts the row offices so that's the sheriff and the district attorney all of county government falls under um, the commissioners in terms of um, overseeing the budget uh, implementing the budget we don't make laws Uh, mostly what we do is implement um, state and federal laws and so we have that responsibility and and believe it or not bucks county government and montgomery county is about the same size in terms of government It's it's a half a billion dollar operation
0: wow yeah Okay, so now we know a little bit about what county commissioners do. Why in the world are you, would you want to be a county commissioner?
1: Blame my wife. No, <laughs> I, I, I. <laughs> if you knew her, you would know that is the furthest thing from the truth. Um, yeah, so I've always had an interest in public policy, public service, and, you know, when I was in school, high school, college, you know, I was a political science major and, uh, uh, you know, really have always had an interest in, in government and uh, was very involved after I graduated from college, uh, had an ROTC scholarship, and once I got back from uh, serving some time with the, with the Army and out of Fort Knox... I got involved in some campaigns, um, and then that led through a couple years to being involved in some public policy initiatives, working for um, county government. And then I kind of veered away from that. God took me on a different path and was involved in real estate development. And sort of my passion has always been community development, community revitalization. And I did a lot of that with... uh, in my business. And then in 2011, uh, one of the um, individuals who was the county commissioner of Bucks County got elected to a higher office, so it created a vacancy. Uh, and the way it works is the judges um, decide on who's going to be the next commissioner. And I was away, um, this was back in the fall November 2010, I was away actually on one of the men's retreats that I'm involved with. And, and I came back and there was a story about who's going to be the next commissioner and everything like that. And I came back on a Sunday night, and my wife um, looked at me and she said, I think you should put your name in for this. I kind of took a pause. I mean, it's something I was interested in, but it was the furthest thing I expected to hear from her. And uh, after a lot of prayer, uh, I mean, and a lot of prayer, um, we decided the, to put my name in, and uh, lo and behold, Judges picked me and then I ran in 11 and ran again uh, in 15 and I've and, uh, had the opportunity to serve. And, and I enjoy doing it because, you, you know, as, as cliche or as corny as it might sound, at, at this level of government, um, you really can have an impact in people's lives. So that was one of the reasons I decided to do it.
0: That's great. Well, politics is kind of a dirty business and maybe uh, dirtier than ever these days. So how do you navigate in that political world Seeking to continue what Jesus started and live out your Christian faith.
1: Yeah, uh, good question. It's not easy. I will tell you that. (laughs) Uh, Haven't been kicked out of any restaurants yet, Um, but um, I have had my share of mudslinging and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, you know social media stuff come at me, and it's it's it is pretty divisive and it can get pretty dirty and negative. But to answer your question. There's really sort of three things that I try to keep in, in mind as I go through this. Um, the first is to really just respect everybody's opinion. And, and um, you know, I may disagree with them, and, and probably more times than not, I do, um, but I try to not be judgmental about where they're coming from. And sometimes when I see the anger or, or what's coming at me or somebody else that I'm, I'm involved with, I, I kind of just try to back up and say, look, I don't know what's going on in that person's life or their story and, you know, what makes them passionate about what they're saying. And so I just try to try not to be judgmental and try to show that person respect for the position that they're coming from. From. That that's one thing. Um, second thing is um, actually something you said a couple of weeks ago, talking about things being temporal. And, um, you know, another perspective I try to keep is that this is temporal. Um, now, that doesn't mean you should close your eyes and put your head in the sand and, and just wait to, for it to go by. But, you know, that this feeling of divisiveness that we have um, is temporal. I mean, this isn't the first time in our country that we've experienced this. I mean, you, you know, we had a thing called the Civil War a long time ago that divided the nation. And we've had different moments in our history, um, you, you know, where there are things were really the rancor was so much, the divisiveness this was was so much. Um, I mean, even the founding of this country, I mean, we sort of look back and think it was just this nice, you know, group of guys getting together and tailgating at uh, Independence Hall after they signed the Constitution. Now, this is, you know, this has been divisive from the very beginning. So what I try to think about is that this is temporal, that this is not the end-all be-all, that there's more to the story, which really leads me to the third thing that I try to keep in mind, and it's probably the most important thing, um, and that's God's in control right? I, I mean, I need to trust God. We need to trust God in this. And so if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you, you've got a choice. You either need to believe God's in control or you don't, right? And so if you do, then you need to say, all right, he's got this. And so if he's in control, you know, that means he knew Trump was going to be president. He knew Obama was going to be president. He knew all of the presidents. And for that matter, he knew everything in the world. And so it's important. I try to think that there's a larger story going on, that there's a bigger story, that it's God's story. And so I try to, back up and trust god in that
0: that's great Uh, a couple of times i've heard you say that what you're seeking to do in government is pretty much what the church is called to do as outlined in matthew 25 Mm -hmm. why don't you kind of unpack that for us
1: yeah so i mentioned that the uh, county and this again is the same in sort of montgomery county for those of you that live there um County government, half a billion dollar operation, about 80 percent of that, so to say, about 400 million dollars, goes to what I would call the human services arena. And, and uh, when you take a look at what's in our human services arena, it's, it's ironic um, how it matches up to what's in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheeps and the goats. So the parable of the sheeps and the goat, Jesus is telling the story that we need to take care of the what? the thirsty, the hungry. Those without clothing, the poor, the people who don't have a place to lay their head, those that are sick, and those that are in prison. Well, when you take those things, okay, and take them, there's a perfect match and an overlay into county government and into our budget. And so what are we doing at the county? Well, we're taking care of the people that are in prison. We're taking care of the people that are hungry. We're taking care of the people that are thirsty. We're taking care of the people that need homes. We're taking care of the people that are sick. And this just you know, doesn't mean sickness in terms of um, you know, a sinus infection. We're talking about addictions, behavioral health issues. I mean, all of that's there. And so you know, when I look at that, $400 million is a lot of money. And uh, each year we struggle with the budget because the needs are continuing to grow. They're not decreasing. The needs in the community are increasing, and so we're wrestling with, well, how do we meet those needs? And, you know, in the back of my head, thinking about Matthew uh, 25, I'm thinking, wait, this is the church's role, and the church needs to be doing more than government needs to be doing in these things, because that's what we're called to do.
0: Yeah, we actually had you in to talk to a senior leadership team uh, a couple of months ago, and so let me ask you in front of these folks, so what recommendations would you give or ideas would you give us to think about about how Calvary as a church can participate or take the next couple of steps in some of those areas?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. <clears throat> so when you think about those areas and you think about that parable and what we're called to do, and in addition to working with widows and orphans, um, there's a lot that the county's involved in, a lot that you can, the church can be involved with. Um, I was mentioning prisons. Um, you, you know, unfortunately, the prison population in this county, in Montgomery County as well, is not decreasing, it's increasing. Increasing so much that we have to build more space okay? That's not the way, the trajectory that we want going. Um, One of the reasons that men and or women um, stay in prison, even if they can get out, is they don't have an address, a home to go to. They don't have transportation. They don't have a job. Or the one thing that I find interesting is they don't have a family to reconnect with. They don't have the community. So there are a lot of local prison ministries that I would encourage you, especially men, um, because uh, the men that are in these, in, in our correctional systems, they need mentors. They need guidance. They need people that can help them and it's not an easy thing so that's an area um of course you know in the in in the elderly population in our county that's increasing too um our area agency on aging is tasked with working with the elderly and you know things of of meals transportation helping them to get back and forth to run errands and things like that there's a lot of different vehicles of which you can work with um Uh, men and women that need that help of course our children and youth um, you know the 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 needs of our youth in this county are incredible Um, foster care adoption um, just just basic help of getting from point a to point b and the pressure is put on county government to take care of those needs and we need to work with the ministries and the nonprofits that are out there to help them and and so there's just a a lot of things that we could be doing that i think we should be doing to re-engage more in the public square
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, the fact that the gospel is not only um, a message or good news that connects us to God, it's a message that needs to connect us to other people, better with ourselves, and living better in the world. And so the church doesn't exist for our own good, we exist for the common good. So we continue to think about those things as elders and leaders, SLT, and we have people like Rob helping us think through. That's why we do some of the very different things that we do that may not fit under your normal category of kind of church work. Well, Rob, the Bible tells us to uh, pray for our leaders, not just church leaders, but community leaders, governmental leaders, county commissioners, governors. How can we, as your church community, pray for you, for the other county commissioners, for other governmental leaders? What are some things specifically that we can pray about?
1: Good, good question, and thanks for asking it. Um, discernment, you know, to, to be able to discern, to have better judgment. Humility. You know, in the in the political world, the, the the those wheels keep turning, and you know, politicians they want to get elected again, they want to get to the next higher office or something like that, and you know, sometimes that requires them thinking more about themselves than about others, and and then they put things backwards. So I would pray for, would ask you to pray for humility, not just for me, but for others in that judgment and discernment as we go through because there's there's a lot of serious issues out there Um, and uh, it requires us to have open eyes and ears and a heart to one another um, and to and to what the gospel has to say
0: that's good I would encourage you to uh, take that as a recommendation include uh, Rob and the other county commissioners and governmental leaders uh, on your prayer list and uh, Rob is going to give bring our top 10 this morning but before he does that would you join me in praying for him Lord, thank you uh, for Rob, for the ministry that he has in the lives of lots of people, not just in his family, but in the community, in the county, for all of the other governmental officials that he gets to rub shoulders with and influence. Lord, the things that he requested, we do pray for. Would you give him and others in his position and governmental roles, church leaders as well, greater discernment, good judgment, humility, putting others first, living for the common good, seeking the common good more than individual good. And Lord, we pray that wherever you've called us to serve, help us to think clearly about how we can continue what Jesus started in that context. Lord, you didn't call us all to be county commissioners. You didn't call us to be governmental officials. You didn't call us to be mechanics or business owners. But you have called us to follow Jesus in the context we're in. Would you help us do that better? And would you help us do better as we think through how Rob has thought through some of this in his life? Thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Quakertown. Um, it's great to be back here in Satterton with all of you. Um, kind of dangerous giving a politician the this, this, this stage here this morning, but... Um promise, I last thing I want to be is a, a politician. Um, the first thing I want to do is make sure I can say exactly what I said in the first service. So if you're here in the first service, you might not. So Charles called and asked me to share uh, with you this morning my favorite Bible verse uh, into the top 10. And... Um, yeah, I gotta tell you, it's not an easy thing to do. I, I challenge you to sort of think of what your favorite Bible verse is, and I'm sure the moment you do, another one's gonna pop in, right? You know, I mean, because there's all kinds of stages of life that we go through, different seasons of life where where Scripture speaks to us, right? Times of mourning and sorrow. We look for comfort from Scripture, and it gives us great comfort. Um, we look for guidance and direction, and we can get that. And there's there's moments of just, you know, celebrating and praise. And, you know, so yeah, you have a lot of different Scriptures or at least I do, that I can point to and I think, wow, that, that, that's my favorite verse. And then you think of another one. So it's not an easy task. And earlier in the week, I got it down to two. I got it down to two. And then I thought, I can't do two because this is the top 10. If I do two, it'll be the top 11. And that'll change all the signs and everything that we're listening to. Um, so I worked it down to one. And, and the truth of the matter, it really wasn't that difficult to me when I was Honest about um, sharing with you what the most impactful, um, what I would say transformational, here at Calvary, we talk about missional, relational, transformational. Um, this verse that I want to share with you to, this morning is the one that has had the most impact, the most transformational impact in my life. Um, it really, when I read it and, and it came alive to me, it was a moment when, when everything changed, right? When there was a shift in my life Um, and for those of you sort of comfortable with the language it was the moment I can point to and say this is when I was born again right this is when the new life of Christ took over me when it was no longer I who was living but I was willing to give that up and to allow Christ to live in me so my favorite bible verse to share with you this morning is Matthew 16 25 you may be familiar with it um, and it reads this For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. In the uh, spirit of this series and the outline that Carlos and Charles have been using, um, I want to share with you this morning uh, the three things that we've been talking about when we look at these scriptures. The first is what's going on. I want to tell you what's going on in this scripture. The, The next is what does it say? And then finally, share with you what does it mean, but I want to share with you this morning what this scripture means to me, and what it meant to me personally and still means to me today. So what's going on? Um... A few weeks back, Charles, uh, in his, uh, one of his verses that he talked about, he used the scripture, I will build my church. Well, that verse comes from this same chapter in Matthew, Matthew 16. And what's going on in the beginning of this chapter is Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and they're sort of hanging out, you know, imagine maybe they're around a campfire, or just sitting around doing whatever, and Jesus has asked them a question, and the question he asked them is, hey, what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And so they start telling Jesus, um, what they're hearing out there. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're this prophet, that prophet. You know, they're going back and forth. And then there's this moment where Jesus asks this pointed question to his disciples. And instead of saying, what are others saying about me? He says, who do you say that I am? What do you guys think? Who do you think I am? And this is when Peter answers him. And he says, you are Christ." the son of the living God. And that's when Jesus says, Peter, you got it, right? Man didn't reveal this to you, God did. You know, you're the rock on which I will build my church. And nothing, Hades, nothing will prevail against it. And so at this point in this chapter and in this particular story, and then also at this point sort of in the the narrative of Jesus's ministry, there's going to be a shift that occurs. You see, up until this point, for the most part, up until this point, um, there's been all of these great stories, great events, intriguing parables that have been told, great lessons, great stories, cool miracles, right? You know, it feeds 5,000 people here one day, 4,000 people here another day. The blind are seeing, the deaf hear, the lame are able to walk, I mean, Jesus is able to walk on water himself. He's able to control nature, calm storms. I mean, he touches people and they're healed. He, he backs down the Pharisees, right? Those Pharisees who are oppressive and putting so much rules and regulations on the people. And, and so until this point, for the most part, there's this wonderful stuff going on around Jesus's ministry, right? This this stuff that's bringing him, his disciples who are committing to him, he's bringing apostles, more followers, you know, the crowds are growing. I mean, because they're seeing something that is really, really great. And if you think about it, what they're seeing, right, is Jesus is giving them an illustration of what's to come. He's giving them an illustration of what's to come, of what's in store for us in the kingdom of God. These are pictures, right, where People see, there's no blindness, there's no deafness, there's no paralysis, there's no pollution, right? We live in union and harmony with one another. It's a, it's a picture, for the most part, an illustration of what can be and what was meant to be. And so we see that, but, but at this point, there's this shift that's about to occur. In the story, and I'd also argue sort of in the narrative and where we are in the timeline of Jesus' ministry, And so the shift that happens is this shift away from all of these great, wonderful things that are happening. Not that great, wonderful things won't happen, but for the most part, we shift away from the life-filling, the good feeling, the walking on water stuff, and the narrative changes to things about suffering, sacrifice, death. It's a shift at this point that points to the cross, It's a shift at this point that we know as we look at the story points to Calvary. And so if you look at the stories from this point on, not that all of them are this way, but a lot of them are harder teachings, right? Lessons that are a little uncomfortable and awkward to hear. We move away from you know joyful words and analogies to things that are a little bit more challenging. Words like suffering, denying yourself sacrifice death gnashing of teeth what's gnashing of teeth right doesn't sound very good i don't like sitting in a dental chair so i don't think gnashing of teeth sounds like a good thing i mean we get these harder stories harder parables in the parable of uh, of the talents You have um, three guys that are given one talent, two talent, five talents. The guy with five talents comes back with five more and he's, you know, exalted for that and the master says you got more to do. The guy that gets two comes back with two. Great things for him. But the guy that had one talent, he didn't waste it. He didn't lose it. He played it safe. He buried it. He was conservative with it. He was a good financial steward in his mind. But when he brings it to the master, the master says, you're out of here. There's gnashing of teeth. And so you see this shift that's occurring in these stories that really makes things a little bit more difficult, a little bit more uncomfortable. And so you're kind of left wondering, well. What happened to the rest for the weary the you know the tender mercies the tender touches the don't worries the have faith you know not that they're not there anymore but but the language the paradigm the shift is occurring in this story and in his narrative. And, and I would say what's going on in this shift is that we're beginning to see this change and this challenge to his disciples and to his followers, and yes, to you and I, right? This change and this shift of moving away from self and to moving to something more, something other than us. And so we pick up um, in chapter 16, right after Jesus uh, calls, you know, Peter the rock, you know, the the guy that he's gonna build the church on, you know, they're all fired up about this. Peter's fired up about it, you know, and, and we're gonna pick up now to say, well, what's being said? What's being said in this next part of the chapter? And we'll pick up in verse 21. And so it says this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, there's that word, many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And then he must be killed. And on the third day, he'd be raised to life. And I love this part. Peter takes him aside. Now, this is Peter who's like, look, I got the charge. The church is going to be built on me. I can do this. No problem. And he hears all this, and he takes Jesus to the side. Can't you say, well, well, Jesus, come here. You can't be saying that. Let me tell you what's going on. And And Peter says, never, Lord, never. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter, and he says something completely counter to what he just said a few verses prior. He looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. So you see the shift? You know, there's a shift that, that, that's happening in this story and in this ministry, and a shift that's being said to um, his disciples. You know, that story is I read to you is from Matthew 16. The story is actually um, recorded two other times in Mark and in Luke, Um, and and almost verbatim. So it's 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 uh, it's three times in the three Gospels there: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you know, I don't know about you, but um, I'm married. And um, when my wife tells me to do something the first time, I usually go right out there and not do it, <laughs> right? And I'm like, she couldn't really been serious about it. Um, you know, And I was, you think she really wanted me to do that? Nah, we can get it done later or whatever's going through my thoughts. And then the second time she says it, I'm like, oh, well, maybe she was serious about this. Maybe I should do it, you know? And then I kind of debate whether or not she was or wasn't, and if I do it or when I'll do it. And the third time she says it, that's when I say, uh, yep, got it done. It's already almost done. I'll be right there, right? You know, the third time is usually what they say, the charm. The third time uh, is the one that that is important. And so when I look at stories like this uh, that are recorded in the Bible, I, I sort of think the same thing. Not that if a story is told once, it's not important. But if it's recorded three times, almost verbatim, take note, right? Take note. Something's going on here. And so what's going on and what's being said and what Jesus is saying is this. Following him is not going to be easy, but it'll bring life. That we have to deny ourselves. We have to stop looking to fix things on our own. Stop looking to arrange, to manipulate, to coordinate. We have to let go and turn it over to him. We have to stop trying to earn our way. We have to stop trying to control our outcomes. We have to deny ourselves. We have to die to our own will and take up God's will and follow Him. And Jesus says to His disciples that if we do that, if we lose that, we find life, we'll be saved. But if we do it our way, if we try to find life on our own, we don't, we lose it, we find death. We experience something completely counter to what Jesus has to offer us. And and that message, that shift, and that message to you and I, that's completely counter to what the world says, right? It's completely opposite to what culture and society says culture society the world says hey man you gotta figure this out on your own if you don't you're a loser right take control be a man be a woman stand up figure this out it's on your shoulders right isn't that the worldly message that we get and jesus is telling us uh uh-uh. stop trying to hunt for it stop trying to search for it stop trying to find it let go and find me and if you find me you will find life Pretty heavy stuff, pretty heavy stuff, and it's a shift, I think, in the story, in the ministry, in what's going on. And so the question, the next question is, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I wanna share with you what it means to me, but I suppose <clears throat> in general, on a personal level to each of us here this morning, I, I would say this is, is are you willing are you willing to make a shift like that, where it's no longer you controlling things, but you're letting God take over, where you're yielding your own will to His will? Are you willing for there to be this change in your own lives, a shift away from self and away from your own will and towards God's? Well, there was for me a shift. Um, about 16 or so years ago when I came across this passage, and I want to share with you what that means and meant to me and still means today. In order to do that, I kind of need to dial the clock back and and go back about 16-ish years or so, and uh, my wife and I were living in Buckingham. We were in a brand new home in Buckingham, and Grace, our oldest, was probably two-ish or so. Evelyn uh, was probably an infant. And, and we're living in Buckingham. Did I, did I say Buckingham? Right? The reason I say Buckingham is because I grew up in Warrington. I know Warrington's is not the projects or the ghetto. But I went to see the east. And uh, that was back when there was east and west and 611 was the dividing line. And, and I lost three times to west on Thanksgiving Day. But I, that's another story. Um, but when, when I was growing up in the 80s and going to the East, living in Warrington, um, you know Buckingham was Buckingham, right? Nice, big homes and, you know, rich kids and you know, all kinds of things that were up there. And, and for me, that was like, you know, that was the zip code. And so when we went to buy a home, you know, I was going to buy the home where? Buckingham, right? I was going to, because you got to know something about me. At that point... I was concerned about how I looked and appeared to everybody, right? How I looked and how I appeared. The external was what mattered to me. And so living in Buckingham made it, hey, that guy, he's made it. He's got a new home. He's got his own business. You know, he's hobnobbing with politicians and elected governors and, you know, I mean, I, got, I'm, I am, you know, on the outside, I looked really, really good. At least I thought I did, right? I spent every effort and energy I can to look good on the outside. And so we're sitting one night um, on our rocking chairs out in front of the porch of our our house. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, I'm I'm all about how I look on the outside Um, and everything, every bit of energy I had going towards keeping that facade, that pose real. I didn't want anybody to look behind the curtain to see the emptiness and, and, and the fear and the doubt and the insecurity that I had. So I worked very hard to make things look good on the outside. And so one night we're sitting on the porch and, and my wife, um, I forget what sparked the conversation, but she knew enough, thank God, to know that I was empty, broken. And, and, and in need of something other than all the things that I was trying to to put up this facade that I was trying to put up and so uh, we're sitting there and and um, conversation was going one way or another and I'm sitting on the rocking chair I'm looking over here and she's there and she says to me Rob you need you know what you need you need to go on a spiritual journey now I'm looking this way, she's over here. From the moment my head went from here to here is what, maybe a half a second or so? Let me tell you what was going through my head in that half second. It went from who are you to tell me that I need to go on a spiritual journey? What do you know about spirituality? I've went to church all my life. My dad was a minister. I'm a PK. I went to vacation Bible school. I checked every box. How dare you tell me? Why are you questioning my spirituality? So from there to there is what's going through my head and what I'm about to just lay out on her. And at the last second, before I was going to say that, I could still remember it. I heard this still, quiet, soft voice say Rob she's right and so I stopped and I had a decision I could chide right back at her or not and I decided not to and I said you're right that's what I need now I had no idea what a spiritual journey was I mean after all I grew up a Methodist right I knew what potluck suppers were but I didn't know what a spiritual journey was So there I was with this challenge, this shift that I needed to take, and I didn't know what to do. And let me just dial back the clock a little bit more to give you a little bit of perspective. Um, you know, if you dial it back about 20 years before that, you know, I'm in somewhere between fifth and sixth grade. and. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm off to, to church camp that summer. And like I said, I, I was a PK, grew up, you know, as a, as a PK, you do everything, right? You go to church every Sunday, you go to Sunday school, you go to vacation Bible school, you're the acolyte. You go, I mean, you go to everything, right? And so you're checking all the boxes. And that summer I went to um, uh, Pocono Plateau, which is I went every summer to, um, or many summers. And I can remember around the campfire, s- sincerely and authentically as ever, giving my life to Christ accepting him as my savior. And I did. I mean, and, and, and I remember it like it was yesterday. It was real. The problem was, um, I kind of took that and it was like the Monopoly version of the get out of jail free card. You know, where you, you just kind of put it in your back pocket. You got it. You, you know what it is. Um, and from that point forward till literally sitting on the rocking chair with my wife for, for 20 years, I spent a lot of time, energy, and effort trying to do everything on my own, right? Trying to make sure I got it right. Trying to make sure that the external appeared to everyone to be just in good shape. Because that's what I thought I had to do, right? I had to find my life. I had to seek it out. I had to do all of these things. And so I tried. You know, and I tried. I tried to do everything, right? Because the last thing I wanted was someone to look behind all that and say, wow, this, this guy doesn't have what it takes, right? This guy's a loser. You know, that was my fear. And so I worked very, very hard at making sure the external looked good. Dated the best looking girls. I played varsity sports. I went to college and played football and ROTC. I mean, I had this whole all-American guy kind of image that I thought was what I should look like. And, you know, after college, you know, I did, I got involved in politics. I was involved in a lot of campaigns. I was with congressmen and senators and governors, and I'm in my early 20s and I'm hobnobbing. And then I started my own business. You know, I'm reading all books about success and leadership and all this stuff. And I'm I'm all over the place trying so hard. Hard, right to to keep up this pose and this facade of how I looked and how I appeared because that's what I thought I needed to do I knew that I had that sort of get out of jail free card in, in my back pocket but here I am now sitting on the porch in the rocking chair next to Kathy and she tells me to go on a spiritual journey and I knew that was the right thing to do I mean, I can look back on this now. I know how God was working in her to work on me. And so I said, yeah, but I had no idea what that meant. So I did something radical. I did something radical. I decided to read the Bible. Right. I mean, at this point, I had been reading all kinds of other things. I was familiar with the Bible. I was going to church. But I decided to read the Bible, and, and I started in Matthew. And at about the same time that I started that, one of my best friends who was living down in North Carolina, and we sort of had parallel lives, if you will, you know. Families are the same. We were both in real estate and business and athletes, and he had some spiritual components to him. And, you know, we were, we were going through life together. He called me, and he said to me, he said, hey, I want you to read this book. And I'm like hey, Bruce, I, no, right now I'm reading the book. I'm reading the Bible. I'm done with all those seven habits of this and you know, how to be an effective leader. And not that they're not important, but they weren't filling me, right? And I thought he was gonna give me one more of those because we had this little book club. And he said, no, I want you to read this book. And I said, all right. He was so insistent, I read it. <clears throat> and the book was called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. Um, and this isn't a promo for that book. I'm just telling you, as I look back on it, God used my wife and my best friend at that time to penetrate that external shield that I had over me to get right to my heart, to open my heart, to see things in a different way, to hear things in a different way. And so as this was going on, one morning, sitting in my chair, early morning, devotions, I'm reading the Bible, and I come across Matthew 16, 25. And everything changed, everything changed. I had probably heard that Bible verse several times before. I'm sure I memorized it in vacation Bible school. It meant nothing to me, but that day, it was as if Jesus had said those words specifically for Rob 2,000 years ago, and as though Matthew recorded them for me 2,000 years ago. That's how personal that verse was to me at that moment. And, and everything changed. Everything changed, and God was working on me and my heart, with my wife and my friend, and and giving me something that I needed, which was rest for the weary. Right? I all of a sudden went to all the ch- stop the chasing and the running and the hunting, um, and started to yield and give up that for God, and to allow God and Jesus to do the work in me that so needed to be done because I couldn't do it on my own. So today I, I will tell you that I'm nowhere near where I need to be on this journey. Um, I fail more times than I succeed. It's kind of like that Waze you know, app you have on your phone, like once you go in the wrong direction and then it kind of reorients you. you know, I, I got a lot of reorienting over the last eight, 16, 17 years. I, I'm nowhere near the man yet that God has designed me to be, but I do know this. I'm a lot closer to it and further than I ever would have been had I kept trying to do it my own way, had I kept trying to save my own life. I was empty and exhausted. Now I'm filled with new life. I have found the life that only Jesus could offer me. Everything else I was doing on my own was temporal and fleeting. It wasn't lasting. I could never find it, and I gave up that self reliant quest. And just like the scripture said, I decided that, I would lose that life for him and find the new life that he offers me. And I don't ever want to lose it again. And my hope for you is that you will find that new life too by making a shift in your own life towards him by losing yourself and gaining Christ. ask all of you to rise and I'll close in prayer as we go out into this week. Our dear Lord Jesus, um, I just give you thanks for this day and for this time together and for Calvary Church and the church, your church. Just pray for each of us as we head out into the world that we not follow the world, but that we follow you. And yes, it's challenging and difficult. And I pray that we would each have the courage, the confidence, and the strength that we need to have an impact for you, that we could re-engage in the public square, that we can bring the gospel and the church to the needs of so many people and to continue what Jesus started by being the men and women that God designed us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' most heavenly name. Amen.